Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. So good to be back with you for another conversation about unity among Christians. Our goal on Common Grounds Unity is to be, in part, the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, that, that those who are his followers would be one, as he and the Father are one. So in these conversations, we're in a series in the second season uh, based in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3, where uh, we're being reminded that there is a time to uproot and a time to plant. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. We've been talking about things that maybe need to be torn down and things that need to be built back up in its place. And as a part of our conversation, we've got a guest that uh, we're going to introduce in just a moment, Tina Bruner is my co-host. Tina, glad to be back with you. Rubel Shelley is with us today, and I, I just want to begin with an acknowledgement of, of Rubel and the book that we're going to be discussing that he wrote back in 1984. It's one that was formative in my own thinking, my life spiritually, and, and my relationship to the church. It was a game changer in so many ways, and it was for so many of my contemporaries at the time who were students of ministry and getting ready to go into ministry. Um, I was a Bible major and a ministry major at Harding University back in the 80s when this book came out, and Rubel came to what was called our Timothy Club meeting. That was the kind of club you'd have for Bible majors at, at Harding University where resource speakers would come in. And Rubel talked about this book that we're going to be talking about. I immediately picked up a copy, and it became the source not only of conversation among myself and many others, but but really a life-changing book. To give Rubel a little bit of a bigger introduction, Rubel has spent his life in Christ-focused ministry. He's been a preacher, a teacher, a writer, a college president. He's always been an advocate for unity in the body of Christ and, and a non-sectarian presentation of the gospel. Uh, he, he served in vocational ministry. Uh, he's been in full-time ministry. He's taught at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Tennessee State University. He served as professor of philosophy and religion at Rochester College and eventually went on to become the president of Rochester and then in 2015, he accepted the position of Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Lipscomb University. 
And in recent years, he's reduced his teaching load to adjunct status. He serves now as a teaching minister at Harpeth Hills Church of Christ. He's authored many books. In, in more recent times, he's released Divorce and Remarriage, A Redemptive Theology, a very helpful book uh, related to the divorce and remarriage issue. And also, I knew Jesus before he was a Christian, and I liked him better then which is just a great read. So he's got many other books that we could be talking about today, but we're going to focus on a book released in 1984, I Just Want to Be a Christian. Uh, He's married to Myra. They have three grown children and nine grandchildren and a great-grandchild on the way. So I couldn't be more thrilled to be here with uh, Rubel Shelley. My co-host is Tina Bruner. Tina, good to be with you as well. And why don't you get our conversation started and tell us how you're doing. Yeah, everything is good. It was so interesting to me when we were talking about the the guests that we were going to have during this series. I was not familiar with this book. Um, and as I was reading it, I just kept texting different people, different like quotes from it and thinking how even though this was written in 1984, it could be it could be a letter to the church today. And so I'm super excited that we have the opportunity uh, to make people aware of this great resource and also to just hear from uh, Rubel and and talk more about how he see things, how he sees things now. So as we begin, we want to read an abridged section from the author's preference of I Just Want to Be a Christian. And like we said, this book was published in 1984 and the words seem so true um, for today. Churches of Christ are not growing generally. Our image in parts of the United States where we are best known is quite poor. For example, usually known for what we are against and accused of thinking everyone but us is going to hell. And we are so splintered over so many issues that no one takes us seriously as a unity movement, much less do they see us as an embodiment of the church described in the New Testament. Young people appear to see their options in a couple of ways. First, some are trying to decide whether or not to stay within their family and personal heritage to this point. They see pettiness, majoring in minors, and church politics being played in some quarters. Many are too sensitive to be part of it and have gone looking. Others have just dropped out altogether. Second, those who decide to stay within are sometimes forced to pick between what they perceive to be a dead, cold church and a new wave evangelistic church. The former are perceived as funeral parlors where old people sit around the corpse waiting for burial and the latter generate excitement but tend to regiment life around one ministry to judge one's worthiness only in terms of success in recording baptisms and to leave as casualties a string of people who cannot measure up to the group expectations. Rubel, from your perspective, to what degree have we moved confidently toward unity and harmony, and how would you assess our situation today? Well, Tina, let me begin by saying I'm not surprised you had never heard of the book or of me because you're too young. Uh, you're kind. Uh, that oh, no, no, I I just know the difference in age. I can count. Um, uh, your your question is a hard one for me to answer because I would like to say we we've come light years, and we have shed a sectarian image. We've shed a sectarian posturing. The answer that I would give would be very, that we are very uneven uh, at this point. There are more churches that have embraced an idea that's closer to 
what I would call the early or original impetus of the Stone Campbell movement or the restoration movement in this country to, to reach in the direction of other brothers and sisters in Christ to try to effect unity. Probably the greater majority of those are in urban areas uh, rather than rural areas. Um, the greater majority of those are, are preachers and Christians who are younger than me. Um, you get into the more rural churches or churches where the median age is, is higher. There's still a great deal of that closed spirit and closed off posture from other churches and other believers. So um, I'm not sure I know how to answer the question. I, I wish I had a definitive answer. I do know that membership in churches of Christ is declining rather precipitously. Uh, what that tells me is that more and more teenagers and people in their 20s and young marrieds, it isn't that they're not going to church anywhere. They are, they're going to churches where they're hearing the gospel. They're going to churches where they believe the focus is on Jesus, not the distinctiveness of the corporate entity called the church. And they're going to places where they believe their children, their own certainly, but, but their children's needs are going to be met by having that kind of Christ-focused image. Um, historically, uh, we have dealt too much perhaps with ecclesiology and too little with Christology, or to say that in non-technical terms, we have advocated and defended a view of the church that has been rather self-focused and self-centered, and we have not focused as the central matter on Jesus himself and, and the large heart of God that is represented in Jesus. I'm, I'm preaching this coming Sunday, for example, out of Matthew 9, and Jesus' response with three short little parables, three little metaphors about, um, hey, uh, John's disciples have come up here wanting to know, Jesus, why, why don't your disciples fast the way we do and the way the Pharisees do? Um, I, I don't want to say that that is a broad breast generalization of how churches of Christ have thought, but it's how some of us were raised to think. The fact that, that we do it this way, there's only one fast required in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement is the only day in the Old Testament out of 365 in any given year that the Jews were required to fast. Fasting is a good thing in the Old Testament when people are, are penitent, when they're seeking God to understand or to find relief, they fast. But, but it was voluntary. It wasn't required. Well, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees are requiring fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and John's disciples apparently had adopted something like that. So they come to Jesus wanting to know, why aren't your disciples doing it? And there's an implied criticism. What's wrong with you that you're not seeing to it that they're doing it? And Jesus gives these, these three little quick parables about the inappropriateness of fasting in their time and place and circumstance. And I, I think we sometimes have missed the inappropriateness of trying to preserve uh, a, a church structure uh, formed out of, what, the 18th and 19th centuries uh, with, with the early uh, impetus of 
our restoration forefathers. Um, we, we don't need to be an Amish church uh, trying to, to preserve the forms and structures of 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Uh, we have to do what is appropriate to time and place with the message of Jesus and not requiring of our own members or others. You have to see everything the way we see it, do everything the way we do it, fast as often as we fast, pray the way we pray, speak of the Holy Spirit the way we speak of the Holy Spirit, do worship the way we do worship. This, uh, that is our history, um, sort of in the Campbell Christian system as opposed to a, a more Christ-focused. So too long an answer to a brief question, but I, I suppose I'm illustrating that I don't know how to answer the question. We've made progress, but we are by no means, in my judgment, where we need to be. You mentioned that um, maybe younger families are not part of the Church of Christ now. And one thing that struck me in reading your book was... Um, that you pointed out that everyone needed a label. And one thing I wonder if how you see or if you see it this way, that it seems like there are some younger people who may not be going to another kind of church. They're rejecting church. They're, they're not looking for a label. They're not looking for the church because it doesn't seem like we're very relevant. Do you think that's true or what would you say to that? I think I would point to some of the research that George Barna has done uh, about the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, and, and people that he calls the revolutionaries. Of course, he's not writing about churches of Christ in particular. But among conservative religious people, there, there is something we are witnessing about our children and grandchildren. They are not brand loyal. Um, if, if granddaddy drove a Ford and daddy drove a Ford, I, I may drive a, a Fiat or a Toyota. Um, same thing in terms of their religious convictions. Well, granddaddy may have been Church of Christ and daddy may have been Church of Christ. Grandmother may have been Church of Christ. Grandmommy Church, is Church of Christ. But um, the, they are going to look not for a brand or particular label or name over the church door. They're going to look for a place where they believe the message of Christ is being heard. Um, my own children, I encouraged them uh, when they were going off to college. Um, and when you choose a church to go to, um, the, the issue is the message that they're preaching about Jesus. Um, two of our children went to um, a university about 70 miles north of Nashville in Kentucky. And on the first Sunday that the older son was there, he attended a church of Christ and carried his roommate, who's Presbyterian, with him because the Presbyterian kid said, well, you're going to, you're going to church? He said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. He said, well, I'm too, a Presbyterian. But he said, I don't, I don't go to church. Tim said, well, would you like to go with me? So he, he attended and went into a church of Christ service where the sermon that Sunday morning was about shorts and dancing. And my son leaned over to him and mouthed, I'm sorry. And he never went back. And the next week, uh, asked around campus for where different people went to church and why. And he wound up attending uh, a Baptist church on the edge of town, where coming home after five weekends away at college and discussing this with him, 
I said, son, where are you going to church? He told me the story I've just told you. Or I said, have you found a church that you've connected with? I presumed he was going to church. And he said, well, let me tell you the story. And he told me what I've just told you. And he said, dad, I love this church. Jason stands up with a Bible in one hand as a newspaper and the other said, it's very much like peak of the week, which was a Wednesday service we were doing at the time. And he said, he applies the word of God stuff that, that college students are talking about. I said, sounds like you found your place. And for the time that he was there, and then when his young brother joined him a couple of years later, that's where they were part of a church. I still have occasional contact with a the pastor there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that their focus was not, I've got to find a church with my label. They had enough understanding of what the church is about. Uh, that they understood our concern is to find a place where we're hearing the gospel, Jesus is being preached, word of God is respected, and what is being said matters to life as I'm trying to live it. Rubel, let's talk a little bit about your uh, background. Yeah. Hearing you talk about your son and kind of you know looking forward from, from where you were and, and how you raised them, yeah, I'd like to talk for just a couple of moments about your own upbringing in history in church life, because this book, I Just Want to Be a Christian, uh, published in 1984, uh, was published at a time where it, it seems like, at least to me, um, there, there were a lot of hearts and minds ready to receive the message that it contained. There was just, just some entrenched sectarianism that still exists, and yet it seemed that the Holy Spirit had prepared countless hearts uh, for people to say amen to what you wrote. And I know your thinking has probably changed and grown and been transformed in many ways since the writing of the book. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about just your own background? You, you, in the dedication of the book, wrote that uh, you dedicated it to your dad, who helped you think through the major issues of the book. And in the final days of his life, he made this request that uh, that you get this volume published. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about why that was so important to him, and then a little bit about your own personal transformation and thinking and understanding at that time that led you to the writing of this book? Yeah, um, I'll confess that it, it's a little bit embarrassing to even talk about this. Uh, it can sound self-serving. I don't mean it to sound that way at all. Um, I, I give a great deal of credit to my mom and dad on several fronts. Um, they were just the godliest two people I've ever known. I have said many times publicly, if I could be half the man my dad was, I'd be twice the man I am today. Uh, he was just the godliest humblest Christian man I've ever been around. Um, the book was dedicated to him for this reason. Um, in let, Let's use round numbers. I, I can't be precise. Around 1980, I was beginning to write and speak some things that would become this book. I just want to be a Christian. And uh, the church where I was, uh, the Ashwood Church in Nashville, later came Woodmont Hills when we moved, um, the, the response to it had been very positive. Um, the first year that I spent with that church, I was overwhelmed with my studies at, at Vanderbilt doing doctoral work and 
frankly, I, I tried to cherry pick some of the best of the old sermons that I had and just to get by, to, to keep up with, with Sunday to Sunday preaching commitments. And even to the end of that first year, I realized I, out of all the sermons that I had, I don't have any more to preach. Uh, I've, I've cherry picked them. I, I, I just don't believe some of the things that I was taught to preach in my college years. Uh, very sectarian, very narrow. And so I decided I'm just going to preach through the gospel of Mark. And I started preaching through Mark and wound up preaching 64 sermons through the gospel <laughs> of Mark. And one Sunday morning, uh, leaving our house, I got to this section in Mark 9 where John says, you know, we saw this fellow casting out demons in your name. We put a stop to that because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, why, why would you stop him? Anybody gives a cup of cold water in my name is not going to lose his reward. That was the text coming up that Sunday morning. And as we were leaving the house, I told my wife, Myra, um, this may be my last sermon at Ashwood today. She said, what? What are you going to say? I said, I don't know. Uh, this is a text that I have never preached before. In all the sermon books that I've ever seen from my peers and mentors, I've, I've not seen a sermon outline manuscript on this text. I don't recall ever hearing it preached. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say about it. So I'm just going to say what I believe the text says and make what I think are some obvious applications. But if I do that, I, I can imagine it getting me fired. So having made her nervous, we went to church and I preached the text and said, this is not the spirit that I grew up with in church. Uh, we, we were very eager to forbid other people from doing this with instrumental music or doing this with the frequency of communion. It doesn't seem to be the spirit that, that Jesus had here. And the fact that John didn't know these people didn't mean that Jesus didn't know these people. It didn't mean that they didn't know Jesus. Or at least that they were operating within the spirit of God that Jesus could approve. So I, I preached that sermon and when I ended the sermon, I thought, well, I've tried to act with integrity. I've, I've said what I believe the text says. I, I guess the chips just fall where they fall. The first person who came to me was a fellow who was about uh, 80 years old, a longtime member of that church and highly respected in Nashville. And these were his exact words, quote, I'm thrilled to finally hear somebody say from the pulpit what I believed for 40 years, close quote. And so help me, there were other people who said exactly the same thing, and the only variation was the number of years. One, one sweet little lady said, for seven years. And I don't know how certain people could date it for so many years. I, this is exactly what I, I believed. I believe that the church is a wider phenomenon than the Church of Christ, non-instrumental Southern American white that I've grown up in. And um, it, it stimulated me to, to keep thinking. And so I taught a Wednesday night class. It was only four weeks. I think I titled it, I Just Want to Be a Christian, uh, sort of as a follow-up to that sermon. Um, kept doing research about it and decided, I, I might want to try to write a book that has this title because people seem to be encouraged by it. 
Well, about that time, my dad became ill. Um, Daddy was 78 years old. Uh, he was working hard every day, as far as we knew, was in good health. Had just had his annual physical about six weeks before that. The doctor gave him a clean bill of health. Started having some abdominal pain. Long story short, finally just had to be rushed to the hospital in Memphis. They did exploratory surgery, thinking that he probably had an adhesion in his intestines from an old gallbladder surgery. He has pancreatic cancer. Daddy never left the hospital. They thought he might live a few weeks. He lived three and a half weeks, but because of the total obstruction of his bowel, um, he was never able to leave the hospital. I had this book in probably second draft, and, and it was I had it spiral bound, and I was working through it and doing edits. And after the first two or three days, when when coming back from the surgery, understanding what he was dealing with. Daddy would have energy in the mornings, but about noon, one o'clock, he was done for the day, rest a lot. Uh, so in the mornings, we had some really wonderful conversations. And one of the conversations that we had, um, Daddy had never encouraged me to preach in the sense of, son, this is what I want you to do when you grow up. But he, when I decided that that's what I wanted to do, what I believe God was calling me to do, he was always encouraging to my decision. He knew that I'd been hammered a bit for some of the things that I had been saying. They were circulating on cassette and in print. And I said, Daddy, I want to talk to you about some of the stuff that um, I'm, I know you've, you've read some things and probably heard some things. I want you to know what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. And so we used successive mornings, um, probably two or three hours at a time. And I worked my way through that book. Mm. Didn't just read it to him, but every key idea. And um, we discuss it. Well, you know, why did you say it this way? Do you think maybe? And so we talk. We finished the book and here was his response. I said, Daddy, what do you think? Should I publish that book? And um, if he'd said, no, I don't think you should publish that book. I don't know if it would have been published or not. Maybe so, maybe not. But this was his response. He said, son, actually, he probably said Joe. Each of my, there are three of us boys. He had names for us. Nobody else called us. Uh, (laughs) Joe, Joseph is not my name, but that's what that he always called. He said, Joe, I, I grew up hearing that said. It was preached from pulpits. I, I went to, and I'll go back to the story of Fried Hardeman. He said, I went to Fried Hardeman and I was taught it there. Uh, both Fried and Hardeman taught me what you have written in that book. And he said, I, I don't know why we ever quit saying it. So, yeah, publish the book. Uh, he said, You're going to lose some friends. If if you publish it, aren't you? I said, probably. He said, well, do what's right. And he encouraged me to publish the book. Now, to go back to his time at, at Fried Hardeman, it wasn't called Fried Hardeman when he attended there. I think it was called the, um, it was a teacher's normal. Both Fried and Hardeman were teaching there. My dad had especially great respect for A.G. Fried. 
My mother and father attended school there from 1924 to 1926. Now, those dates are important. 1924 to 1926. Two-year college being taught by both Freed and Hardiman about undenominational Christianity. And it was during that early period that in one of the early Hardiman Tabernacle sermons, I think it's 1927, it's quoted in, in the book. Uh, I think it was 1927. Hardiman says, I, I would never be so arrogant as to claim those people with whom I take communion on the Lord's Day are the only people who are in God's family, God's church. And and he's he says something like that. In the 1954, again, I think the date's correct, uh, Hardman Tabernacle Sermon, which was sort of the last one, he, he basically said the opposite. He said, churches of Christ are the totality of God's people. And Daddy's statement, I don't know why we quit saying it. I said, Daddy, let's talk about that. That was 1924 to 26. You said you, you were taught, you were told what you're hearing me say in this book that, that yes, we're trying to be just Christians, but that doesn't mean we don't see other people attempting the same thing and that, and that we, we don't have to disallow their faith, judge their faith, condemn their faith. We can join hands with them and do the kinds of things that, uh, you know, David Lipscomb did, um, held revivals in Baptist churches in Middle Tennessee and, and drove a buggy for Catholic sisters during the cholera epidemic here in Nashville. I said, Daddy, why do you think it changed? He said, oh, I'm pretty sure I know why it changed. And we talked about two things. And the principal thing was the editorship of the Gospel Advocate by Foy E. Wallace from, what, 1930 to 1937. Um, the Advocate was such an influential paper. Uh, at that time. And Wallace came, and, and I've seen the letter that uh, Foy Wallace wrote explaining to people why he had accept, come from Texas to accept the editorship of this Tennessee paper. It was to straighten out the Lipscomb heresy of shaking in the Baptists. Um, Lipscomb encouraged churches to accept immersed people from other fellowships into into the Fellowship of Churches of Christ, if, if they wanted to join one of those local churches. Um, you know, but that was a sticking point. Wallace said, absolutely not. They haven't been baptized right. They didn't, they didn't make the confession right. They, they didn't understand for the remission of sins the way the Bible teaches it, et cetera, et cetera. Lipscomb said, there are multiple reasons in the New Testament for being baptized. To receive the Spirit, to, to be part of the family of God, to follow Jesus. You're baptized for any biblical reason. Uh, so I, I see that person as a brother in Christ. Daddy said, during that period of time, um, a lot of pressure was put on local churches. Uh, Wallace blackballed preachers and churches that, that didn't hew his line. And he put pressures on schools, especially in West Tennessee, Freed Hardman, because of, of the kinds of things Freed and Hardiman had been saying back in the 20s of, about a larger fellowship. He said, I, I, he said, I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the room when any discussions were had. But he said, I, I believe it relates to two things. It relates to the, just the pressure that came from the paper and churches and preachers in the area who were influenced by it. 
that if this is the, quote, official position as being articulated in that paper, and all of us know the influence that journals and editors had back in those days, uh, that the pressure just became too great. And then number two, he said, money. He said if, 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 if he could blackball preachers and blackball churches, he could blackball a school. And he said, so he said, I wasn't there, wasn't part of the conversations. But he said, as I've tried to understand the change, I think it was just the pressure that came, especially through uh, the advocate, to, to change the posture from a broader view of Christian fellowship to a narrow, very sectarian view. It's interesting. Oh, sorry. It's interesting to me that as you're talking about that, we can see what the uh, ramifications were for the church in in the differences in those teachings and what that did to bring the church together and apart. But one in one part of the book, you write the price that is that has been paid for a divided Christendom is an unbelieving world. That price of an unbelieving world is a popular opposite of what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Can you just share with us or uh, how you see the bigger picture of why unity is core to the gospel and the mission of the church? Yeah. Jesus is going to get what he prayed for. I'm convinced of that. And eschatologically, looking to the return of Christ and and to the new heavens and the new earth, we're not going to have east side and west side churches. We're not going to have high and low churches. We're not we're not going to have churches that are firing their ammunition at one another. Jesus is going to get what he prayed for. Well, what he prayed for was for the people following him to experience a type of unity like the unity he and the Father and unnamed, I would presume the Holy Spirit have. They're differentiated. Father is not the Son. Son is not the Spirit. They're they're separate and distinct personalities, but they're one. One in the sense of of, of bondedness, of unity, of, of cooperation, working together in everything they do. One in the sense that my wife and I are one. We're covenanted. We're two distinct personalities, but we are covenanted for common goals, and especially as it relates to our children and our grandchildren. And, uh, Jesus wants us to be that way uh, with with our, our, our Baptist neighbor, our Pentecostal neighbor, our Methodist Presbyterian neighbors. Do we do we parse everything just alike? No. Uh, do the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do exactly the same thing in the redemption? No. Jesus said, but we're one. I think Jesus is going to get what he prayed for. I want to be part, not of fighting, the accomplishment or achievement of that goal that will be perfected only at his second coming. But I, I'd like to be part of, of learning to live that experience now. Another anecdotal thing, it's probably been about a month now. There was a Pentecostal preacher uh, here in Nashville, L.H. Hardwick, pastored Christ Church for 52 years. L.H. and I became dear friends, spoke in each other's churches, worked together on any number of projects. And... Um, our deal was whichever one of us dies first, the other does his funeral. Well, he beat me, um, and he he died about thirty days ago of com- COVID complications. And I spoke at his funeral and and told several stories of our interaction and working together. Um, 
one day we were comfortable enough with each other that I said, LH, you know, the time was, and it had been many years ago, I would not have considered you my brother in Christ because I grew up in an environment that was so narrow, uh, legalistic, that because of your view of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, uh, because of you're, you're just being Pentecostal, charismatic, your instrumental music, your, your praise worship, I would have considered you not just an unsound Christian, but LH, I, I would not have considered you a brother in Christ. He threw his head back in typical fashion for him and he said, Rubel, I grew up in the same environment in the United Pentecostal Church and I would not have considered you my brother. And he went on to explain that Acts 2.38 was their sugar stick verse. I said, whoa, 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 LH, that was our verse. He said, no, no, no. And, and he, he started explaining what I didn't know about that was their, he called it their sugar stick verse. That to be baptized, immersed in the name of Jesus, and in the case of the United Pentecostals, Jesus only, baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. It was by grace, but you had to be baptized. And the sign of your being saved was the gift of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. I said, LH, I'd have, I'd have followed you up to the point of the baptism, but I didn't, I've never spoken in tongues. He said, I would not have counted you my brother in Christ because of that. Interestingly, um, when a community church about 45 miles from here that had some Baptist Church of God, Church of Christ people in it, a little over 300 of them, when they got into some fussing over the gifts of the Spirit and whether or not they should be more pronounced in their life and worship. pastor of that church called me and said, Rubel, do you have any suggestion advice about how we can just keep this from dividing our church? I said, man, you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to my friend L.H. Hardwick. He's Pentecostal. He's, char he's charismatic. He speaks in tongues. He understands and he can speak to those people. He said, w would you broker a phone call? I did. And so L.H. said, let Rubel and me come over there and talk to them. And so we went over on a Wednesday night. They moved the pulpit and gave us two bar stools, and we sat with the house packed and people standing. And he began by saying, I'm L.H. Hardwick. I'm pastor of Christ Church in Nashville. I speak in tongues. My wife, Montel, who's sitting over here, is more active as a tongue speaker even than I am. I believe that's a gift of the Spirit. The man on the stool beside me is Rubel Shelley. I believe that he is my brother in Christ. He doesn't speak in tongues, but I see the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He is my brother in Christ, and the Spirit of God indwells us both. He passed the mic to me, and I basically said, I'm Rubel Shelley. I'm minister of the Woodmont Hills Church. I have never received any sort of endowment of speaking in tongues or having a prophetic word. If God were to choose to give me to that, I, I, I hope I would let God be God and accept it. But I said, I, I have I've not received that sort of gift. And out of my background and tradition, have not prayed to receive it. But LH does have gifts that I don't have. Not just tongues, but I, I believe in many ways he's been, he's been able to speak prophetic words in settings. He's my brother in Christ. And because of the union that we have through Jesus, not because we share the same views 
on what the Holy Spirit may or may not be active doing in our churches today. The, the church calmed down after that, stayed together, and they're, they're still a functioning church. And when LH died recently, I called that pastor who is now semi-retired. And I said, help me remember the details of our coming over there. And he said, Rubel, I, I don't remember everything the two of you said that night. Here's what I remember and what a lot of our members remember. The two of you rode over there together and your wives were with you and you mentioned that you stopped and had dinner on the way. He said, just the fact that, that a church of Christ and a Pentecostal preacher and your wives love each other and that you ride in the car together you eat meals together he said to me personally that said more than anything that you said through the microphones that night um i i hope those sorts of relationships are being built uh, among churches and among preachers and and teachers and members of churches of christ with their religious neighbors without them feeling compromised by that. This coming summer, for example, uh, at, at the Harpeth Hills Church, where I'm, uh, I work on a part-time staff role, uh, we're having a summer series where um, it opens with um, Lloyd Shadrach from Fellowship Bible Church. It closes with uh, Mike Glenn from Britland Baptist Church, largest Baptist church probably in the state of Tennessee. Um, we'll have another Baptist preacher. Um, we'll have a, a preacher from a charismatic group, Don Fento, once in Churches of Christ, now uh, the Caleb Company and the Belmont Church. The, it, it, more churches are willing to do that, to have not just a summer series with a half a dozen Church of Christ preachers, but at, at least a, a Christian church preacher or a Baptist preacher, some, somebody who's close enough to us theologically that we know he's not going to come in here and be disruptive, or she uh, is not going to come in here and be disruptive and uh, talk about something we need to fight over. That was one of the things in one of the articles that's in the appendix to that book, I just want to be a Christian. And the appendix is the best part of the book. It's it's the kind of documentation that, that my dad said, I used to hear this being said when I grew up. Well, those those are documents from the late 1800s and the early 1900s where people are saying the kinds of things that I thought were revolutionary and that I was discovering in 1980. No, that's where we started. We veered off from that in the 30s and the 40s. Um, but one of the articles that I really like in the back of that book is, is a David Lipscomb article. He said, you know, I have to be careful. I assume the line that separates truth and error, that I'm on this side of the line, and, and and this fellow I disagree with is on the other, but I have to be humble enough to realize, oops, I'm, I may not know exactly where that line is. Humility would solve a lot of the problems that we have created with our unwillingness to you know, at least begrudgingly admit, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, there, there is another legitimate way of reading this text or looking at that topic. Rubel, um, th this is a great place for us to stop this podcast and say we're going to have Rubel back for the next Common Ground Unity podcast. Boy, you guys are gluttons for punishment if you're going to let me come back. <laughs> oh, we'd love to have you back not only next week, but bring you back more. on This time has gone way too fast. I want to just affirm something you said. The appendix in 
I just want to be a Christian. Both one and two are worth the price of the book. Um, That's you, the you best part a, of the book. Yeah. Oh, it's just terrific. You do a great, you launch into Mark nine and appendix one, and then have that question and answer uh, section. And then there's just a treasure trove of quotes and documents in the second appendix. Can people still buy the book new or is the only way to buy the book used? The book has been out of print for years. Um, I, I have no idea where I'd go around, go about finding a copy, maybe through used books on Amazon, uh, maybe through some uh, Church of Christ bookstore that <laughs> we've got them because in our part of the country, nobody would read it anyway. I, I, I honestly don't know. That book's been out of print for a long time. Gotcha. Well, I the, got the mine on Amazon. So if Did people you? go to Amazon, you huh. can get it from uh, it there. It's a used, but I got an awesome used hard copy. So good. yeah. Good. Yep. Good. Good. Absolutely. They can still be purchased on Amazon. I checked. It was published in 1984. Wow. Author for our listeners. Again, Rubel Shelley. I just want to be a Christian. He's got many other just excellent books out there, of course, but um, this one fits our theme so well. You made a statement about having dinner with uh, L.H. Harwick and how that was just the greatest testimony to your unity. Our theme on Common Grounds Unity is that unity starts with a cup of coffee. And we encourage our listeners after conversations like this to go out and find another believer, either in you know a Stone Campbell Movement Heritage Church or beyond, and start building those relationships that can build to or come to good dialogue and build greater unity. Do that this week. Join us again next week. We're going to be back with Rubel Shelley and talk more about unity. I just want to be a Christian and more. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.